Well, good morning again, Stafford Baptist Church and, and visitors. It is good again to gather with you to, to praise our God who is worthy of our, our worship and our awe this morning. Before we get started, though, with our sermon this morning, would you please join with me in, in prayer once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is our desire this morning to lift high the name of Jesus. So Lord, we, we pray to you that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Lord, that his name would be exalted above all other names in our heart. And Lord, as we see him and know him, Lord, you would give us grace to lift high his name to others. It's in His precious name that we pray this, depending on Him by faith. Amen. Well, in the, the tens of thousands of days that make up our lives, it is amazing how much difference one 24-hour period can make. So the average American lifespan is probably around 29,000 days. But really, it's only a few that that really make a difference in our lives, that define who we are. This week I was reminded of one of those days for me, April 25th, 2013. It was the day I proposed to Rebecca. It took some elaborate planning. I had a photo album prepared, wrapped and, and hidden. I had a Photographer on site to document what happened. But it was, it was complicated when earlier in the day, Rebecca won tickets to the Capitals game that night. And they were good tickets too, better than I had ever had. Well, as you can imagine, of course she knew something was up when I asked her to turn those tickets down. Well, as, as important as that day was, honestly, not much really changed. Not yet, at least. Sure, I, I no longer had in my possession a diamond-encrusted ring. The, the big change, obviously, was who Rebecca was to me. Once I, I got up from that knee, once she had said yes, she was no longer just my girlfriend. She was now my fiancé, and, and with that, the hope that one day... She would become my wife. I tell you that story because our passage this morning is, is something like that for the disciples of Jesus. You know, in, in the two or three years of Jesus' ministry that we have recorded for us in the Bible, only a few accounts are of a full day. Matthew 14, our passage this morning, is one of those. In fact, one of the, the miracles it records is it has the distinction of being found in, in all of the gospel accounts, all four gospels. But, but honestly, not much changes by the end of this day. The big change is who Jesus is to the disciples. Of course, who he is doesn't change, but the disciples' understanding of who he is. After Jesus had been misidentified by the governor Herod, as John risen from the dead, Jesus' miracles here in Matthew 14 reveal his true identity. And for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples acknowledge it. 
And brothers and sisters, as we read and study this passage this morning, it calls on us too to see in His miracles the true identity of Jesus and to respond accordingly. Matthew 14 verses 13 through 36 calls on us, church, to worship the miracle worker Jesus, the true bread from heaven and the Son of God. I think that's the main point of our sermon this, this morning, the, the main point of the passage Let me repeat that again for you. Worship the miracle worker Jesus, the true bread from heaven and the Son of God. Worship the miracle worker Jesus, the true bread from heaven and the Son of God. As always, you'll need to have your Bibles open, so turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 14. The most important thing you'll hear this morning, brothers and sisters, is is not what I have to say, but but the inspired, inerrant Word of God. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that passage on the the pew Bibles provided for you. I do have have particular things I want you to see in these verses, and and you need to see them for yourselves. Don't just take my word for it, or, or you will be weaker. So please, all eyes down with me in God's Word, Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The word of the Lord. Worship the miracle worker Jesus, the true bread from heaven and the Son of God. Well, we're going to walk through this day with the crowds and the disciples, learning from them how to relate to Jesus. And we'll have six points, though some of them very brief. Uh, I'll repeat them if you're taking notes, but they'll also be on the screen behind me. First, follow Jesus in verses 13 to 14. Second, feed on Jesus in verses 15 through 21. Third, obey Jesus in verse 22. Fourth, imitate Jesus in verse 23. Fifth, worship Jesus, 24 through 33. And finally, bring others to Jesus. How are we to imitate the disciples and the crowds? We follow Jesus, feed on Jesus, obey Jesus, imitate Jesus, worship Jesus, and bring others to Jesus. Well, let's start our day with the disciples and Jesus in verse 13. Follow Jesus. Our first point. Look again at that verse. Our, our passage begins with Jesus relocating because he heard some news. Well, it just says when he heard this. What did he hear? Well, in our passage above what we studied two weeks ago, the local governor, Herod, hears of the fame of Jesus. His miracles and attributes them, not properly to Jesus, but, but to John risen from the dead. John had died some time ago. So Jesus, in our text, is not responding to, to John's death. He is hearing that, that Herod is noticing his ministry, that Herod is attributing it to a man that he had opposed, who he had killed. So Jesus is hearing here, chronologically falls from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Since the narrative of John's death is a flashback. Well, with his new attention from the governor, Jesus decides to vacate the area. To withdraw to a a desolate place. He wants to take some of the heat off. We should be used to this now. This is now the fourth time in the Gospel of Matthew that he has done something like this. As an example, in chapter 4, verse 12, we read, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Again, here in chapter 14, Jesus is geographically distancing himself from hostility. A hostility that we will see grow and grow in the next few chapters. He He knows that his time has not come. It's still time for him to serve and to minister. Well, as he withdraws, it says there that he went to the desolate place in verse 13 by himself. Well, we have to assume that his disciples were with him. First of all, they're, they're there in verse 15. But additionally, we know that, that boats needed crews. He couldn't do this by himself. The, the point is that, that he, with his disciples, are trying to get away from the crowds. Their destination is a desolate place to be alone. Jesus with his disciples. But what do the crowds do? Well, they hear of it and they beat the boats there. The end of verse 13, they followed him on foot from the town. So when Jesus arrives in verse 14, the crowd 
is already large. This is the first thing I want us to note this morning, brothers and sisters, in the crowd's response to Jesus. They follow Him. They go to Him. They go to where He is. And this is a major theme of our passage from beginning to end. Discipleship to Jesus, at a minimum, means to follow Jesus. It means so much more, but it means nothing less than following Jesus. The question, though, is, is why do the crowds follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? If you claim to follow Jesus, why do you follow Jesus? If you don't follow Jesus, why should you follow Jesus? Well, John 6.2 tells us that this crowd particularly followed him because they saw the signs he was doing in healing the sick. Here in verse 14, he heals their sick. Later, these crowds will continue to follow him because they ate their fill of the loaves. In essence, these crowds are following Jesus for what they get out of it because it benefits them. Now, certainly, church, there are innumerable and immeasurable benefits in following Jesus. But here's the paradox. If you're following Jesus for the benefits, you're not actually following Jesus, are you? You're following the benefits, to be precise. I remember once seeing the, the Oscar Wienermobile on the highway. Have you ever seen it? It's actually, it's actually pretty impressive in person. And for a moment, I was tempted to pull in behind it and follow it to wherever it stopped. Right? I really wanted, in that moment, a hot dog. Well, I didn't follow it, but that's because I'm not really a follower. I just really wanted a hot dog. I could have pulled off at the nearest 7-Eleven and also gotten a hot dog. Right? The point here is not to, to follow Jesus for the benefits The call to discipleship to Christ is first a call to loss for Christ's sake. We have seen this already in the gospel according to Matthew. Genuine discipleship is described by Matthew 10, 38. Jesus teaches whoever does not take his cross, an instrument of death, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The true example to follow, saints, is Jesus Christ. Himself. Notice how in this passage he loses his life, so to speak, in these first verses. He left to get away from the crowds, but when he meets the crowds, he doesn't avoid them. Oh, they're, they're interrupting our retreat. Time for us to leave. Let's go elsewhere. No, he has compassion. He always has compassion. And it moves him to minister not to his own needs, but the needs of others. Paul writes just very briefly in Romans 15.3, Christ did not please himself. He lived to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And so Christians are called to do the same. When we are called to follow Jesus, we are called not to please ourselves, not to chase our own blessings and benefits, but those of others like Jesus does here. Or actually, maybe more exactly, to pursue our own blessings and benefits by seeking the good of our neighbors. Jesus continued in Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds his life 
will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to lose your life for his sake. And only then will you find it. Lose your life and you will find it. So the first lesson we have this morning, brothers and sisters, even if briefly, is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, not his gifts. And receive all the gifts with Jesus. Follow Jesus into death and find life. But second, brothers and sisters, our second point, feed on Jesus. Feed on Jesus in our next verses, 15 through 21. Our our day with Jesus and his disciples continues. Now it says, late into the afternoon. Verse 15 says, it was now evening. The, The word refers... Uh, to the time from afternoon all the way to nightfall. And since verse 23 also refers to evening, verse 15 must be the earlier of those, afternoon. So here in the afternoon, as the day draws on, his disciples are concerned. They come to him in verse 15. Look at those words again. They say, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food from themselves. Well, there are no food trucks. They can call in no Oscar Wienermobile to stop by. So they'll need to go into the surrounding towns to get food. Sounds reasonable. Well, Jesus has other plans. Verse 16. You give them something to eat. Put yourself in these disciples' shoes. The crowd, we will learn later, is is 5,000 men, not counting women and children. It could be as large as and, and bigger than 10,000 people total. And all they have among them, five loaves, two fish, staples of the local diet. Paul and I had the privilege of going to a conference last week in Louisville where 12,000 people were in attendance, maybe around the size of this crowd. And at mealtime, we had access to hundreds of waitstaff at dozens of restaurants and a cafeteria. It's 2022. We have all the conveniences of of refrigeration and and fast food. And despite all that, it was an immense ordeal just to get a meal during that conference. What Jesus is asking these disciples to do with 12 people, five loaves, two fish, is simply absurd. But Jesus doesn't leave it for them to figure out. Bring the food to me, he says in verse 18. Taking the food, he turns his eyes to his Father in heaven and says a, a blessing for this meager meal. And he begins distributing the food to his disciples and the disciples to give to the crowds. Do some quick math, let's say, Among 12 disciples, each has to feed about 800 people. And if it takes about 10 seconds to feed one of those people, that's nearly two and a half hours of distributing food. Or or maybe it's less centralized, you know, maybe each passes to another. Whatever way, this is going to take a considerable amount of time just getting food to people. All the time wondering, five loaves, two fish, Where are we going to feed these people from? And the bread and the fish never stop coming. Verse 20, brothers and sisters. And they all ate 
and we're satisfied. This is not just a crumb for every person. Well, the way we can split five loaves is for everybody to get, well, one twelve thousandth of a loaf. I don't know. What? Right? No, no, no. Not only does everybody eat and are satisfied, but it says there is more left over than when they started. The twelve baskets, the twelve disciples take twelve baskets and not to waste, each collect an entire basket full of leftovers. With Jesus. Scarcity is not an obstacle. He takes what is meager and provides more than enough for all. What we have here, friends, is clearly a a miracle. Certainly, Jesus' ministry is filled with miracles, but, but there is something particularly significant about this one. It's included in in all four gospel accounts, not only Matthew here, but Mark, Luke, and John. They've all decided to include this in their record of Jesus' life. There's something important here that the disciples saw and we need to see too. We begin by defining what what is a miracle. The theologian Wayne Grudem has a, a helpful definition. He says a miracle is a less common kind of, of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. The purpose, he says, not only to arouse awe and wonder, but to bear witness to himself. It is to give evidence of his identity. The meal is about meeting the needs of the people, but it is not just that. It is to teach both his disciples and the crowds who he is. You know, Jesus will often use what is material to teach spiritual truth. So we remember what he instructed his disciples. Bring the food to me. It starts with him. He is the center of this scene. It's source. And he is the source not just of of physical food, but spiritual food for the soul. Jesus did not come to be a chef He came to be the bread of life. And just as we will perish without bread, we will not have life apart from Jesus. He is our spiritual bread. He is the bread from heaven. In fact, I think the reason that God gave us taste buds and stomachs is so that in time he could show himself to be bread and that we would immediately understand how good an essential Jesus is. I wonder, what, what is the best bread you've ever had? The best bread you've ever had. I spent a, a summer serving in, in Peru. And every morning we would walk down to the local bakery, just down the street, and have fresh bread. I'm talking warm from the oven. A crunchy exterior, soft inside, sweet to the taste. I hope your mouth is watering. God made that to teach us about Jesus. I I think probably most Christians assume that the the metaphors that we have in the Bible, like Jesus is the bread of heaven, are, are something of an afterthought. You know, God... Thinking, ah, I need to teach my people about Jesus. Ah, I'll use bread, right? Whatever concept happens to be at hand. 
You know, he uses marriage as a metaphor for his love because, you know, we understand marriage. But, but I want to put it stronger than that. I think the Bible is clear, for example, that God designed marriage so that he could use it as a description of his love. He designed family so he could describe it of him being a father. Rocks, his strength, food, that he is our life. That in eternity past, God designed a material world that would correspond with spiritual reality. So that Jesus could come and in time, in providing bread, show us that He is the true bread from heaven. There is no spiritual life apart from receiving Christ by faith. Just like there is no physical life apart from daily bread. God had taught the Exodus generation something similar when He provided manna from heaven, what we read earlier in in Exodus 16. And, And Moses would comment later in Deuteronomy that God let them hunger and then fed them with manna so that, designed for, that they would learn the spiritual truth that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I wonder, how how do you imagine this crowd spent their day with Jesus? Well, everywhere we read that Jesus' healing is accompanying with what? His teaching. Mark 6.34 makes it clear, describing this day, He began to teach them many things. He gave them His Word. But the Word of Jesus is not some secret knowledge that unlocks spiritual life. No, no, no. Bible reading is only daily bread as long as it points to and reveals Jesus Christ. Just like the the sign of the bread, His word too points to Himself that He is daily bread. It's not just that He has bread. He is the bread. So I wonder, Christian, have you been feeding on Jesus this week? Are you satisfied in Him? To feed on Jesus is to come to Him in faith. It is to believe in Him. And as we as a church confess together in our confession of faith, that means to receive treasure and rest upon Christ alone for justification and right standing with God. And that even more frequently than we eat. You know, faith is, is more like eating daily bread and less like taking out an, a life insurance policy just in case. It is to cease from working to get right with God. It is to acknowledge that, that God owes us nothing, but by grace He gives us eternal life because of the bread of God that came down as the Lamb of God. You know, another metaphor that we find in the Bible All the the sacrifices of the Old Testament were to prepare us for this metaphor. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who would die in our place for our sins. That His blood, not the blood of, of bulls and goats, is sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. That His blood satisfies God's justice so that He can show us mercy. Beloved, Christ did not die on a cross for his own sins, 
He died on the cross for your sins. If you will repent of them and turning away, place your faith in Jesus Christ for life. That you will depend on Him like daily bread for life and satisfaction. To be a disciple of Christ is to see in His miracle the sign that He is the true bread from heaven and to feed on Him daily by faith. Well, after all, the the bread is gathered up and the day closes, we continue to learn how to relate to Jesus. Third, and briefly, obey Jesus. Obey Jesus in verse 22. Here in in verse 22, Jesus directs his disciples to get into the boat by which they came here and and to go on without him. But the the word Matthew uses is is an unusually strong verb. It says he made the disciples get into the boat. It's usually translated as, as forced or compelled. He forced them to get into the boat. Jesus is firmly in control. He gives the command and the disciples... Obey. He gives no explanation of when he'll meet them or where, not why he wants them to go ahead without them. He simply says, Go. When he sends the crowds away, they go as well. Jesus' commands are not advice to be consulted, they are the dictates of the king. Disciples of Jesus relate to him not only by following him and feeding on him but by doing what he says in obedience. Obey Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 puts it nearly as clearly as it can be. He writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 1 John tells us, to know him truly is to keep his commandments. It is to obey. Disciples of Jesus obey. Christian, I am sure that your obedience is imperfect. Let me remind you, that your obedience to Jesus is not the grounds of your right standing with Him. It is not the grounds of your hope that He loves you. But it is the fruit of it, First John says, that those who know Him will keep His commandments. So I ask, brother, sister, is your obedience to Jesus as faltering as it is increasing? Are you seeking to obey Him? It's what we sang earlier. Can, can you sing that in earnest? That you have in your heart enthroned Him. And there let Him subdue all that is not holy. That you crown Him, we sing, as captain in temptation's hour. Disciples obey Jesus. Fourth, briefly, disciples also imitate Jesus. Verse 23, we we have to notice this. Even if it's not really a way that the disciples relate to Jesus in our text, it is a way that we imitate Him. 
What might you do with a moment of solitude? What might you do with a moment of solitude? Look at verse 23. Notice what Jesus does with his moment of solitude. Disciples and crowds dismissed. He goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. He starts in the evening, probably around dusk, and will continue in prayer through the middle of the night. Surely we can imagine in the same situation that he would be praying for protection from Herod, the reason he left in the first place. Maybe he's praying after a long day of of feeding, of of healing, of teaching for fruit, that those who heard would would believe what he had taught. But have you ever considered, why does Jesus need to pray? He is God. Well, he's certainly not praying to himself. Jesus habitually and fervently taught us as he prayed to his own Father in heaven. Why did Jesus pray? Well, he prayed because he had enjoyed infinite and and perfect intimacy with his heavenly Father from eternity. And he earnestly desired that communion with him. More here than even sleep. In this, brothers and sisters, Jesus leaves us an example to imitate. Jesus in his humanity is an example for us to walk in his ways. You and I, brother and sister, pray not only because it is our duty, commanded, but because it is our delight. It is to enjoy communion with our Father. That's why our church dedicates considerable amount of time in our service to prayer. It is our joy to share our, our most intimate thoughts and feelings with our God in, in prayer. So I ask, friend, do you, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you intentionally carve out time, even in the midst of busyness, even when you're tired, to go into your room to shut the door and pray? What kinds of things occupy your prayer? Are they too often filled with meaningless phrases? Or are you able to pour out your heart like water before the presence of your Heavenly Father? Saints, prayer is a treasure. One of our greatest privileges. So if it's been a struggle for you lately, if you feel weak in it, my best advice for you is to pray with a friend. Get together with another member of this church to encourage one another in prayer. Spend a considerable amount of time in prayer with that friend. Follow Jesus. Feed on Jesus. Obey Jesus. And imitate Jesus as he delights in prayer with his heavenly Father. Fifth, in verses 24 through 33, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. After noting Jesus' prayer late into the night, in verse 24, we, we join the disciples hard at work obeying Jesus. Though they're experienced fishermen, the conditions are, are proving difficult on the Sea of Galilee. And we see in this the part of the reason why Jesus sent his disciples away without him. So that again, he could reveal his, himself to them. In verse 24, they're a long way from the land with wind and wave against them. The hours passed. In verse 25, we're now in the fourth watch between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. 
They've been rowing since dusk, maybe? Perhaps eight hours? Finally, Jesus comes to them. But he has no boat. He has no one to crew it. No, Jesus walks to them. And not by shore around to meet them where they're going. No, he walks right across the water. We wonder, did the water harden to hold him up? Or was he transfigured to float above it? We don't know. But he walked on the sea as if it was solid ground. The storm is no threat to him. And in the complete darkness of the middle of the night, Jesus comes to his disciples. And and again, just like he fed the hungry crowd, his primary goal is not to help them in their moment of distress, though he will. It is to reveal himself to them. The disciples, obviously, in verse 26, notice the figure approaching on the sea and, and conclude they must be seeing a ghost. Here, they're, they're more terrified by what they see, the figure, than whatever threat the storm might pose. But oh, what compassion, friends, from Jesus again. He has compassion always. Immediately, he offers assurance and comfort, shouting above the wind, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. But tucked in there, in the middle of that tender assurance, is a profound claim. Jesus more literally says, Take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. This is not bad grammar, but an echo of the divine name. Exodus 3.14, the name that God reveals to Moses, I am who I am. The self-existent, eternal, infinite creator, I am Yahweh. Take heart, I am. Jesus here is identifying himself with the divine name, calling himself God. Peter Verse 28, always the impulsive one, responds in faith, asking to join his Lord on the water. But not just to enjoy the miracle, but to come to Jesus. And with a simple word in verse 29, come, whatever power allowed the man Jesus to walk on the water, comes to Peter, and he walks out. We have a great lesson of faith in verse 30. Peter takes his eye off of his Savior Jesus and looks to the storm. When he saw the wind, it says he was afraid. He took more notice of the threatening circumstances than the Savior with him in them. Faith, rather, holds its eye on Jesus, whatever else is going on around us, whatever threatens us. But as Peter sinks in fear, Jesus is a ready help. Peter's first instinct is right. Not to try to to swim back to the boat for shelter, but to cry out for the rescue of his Savior and receive help from him. Friends, what is your first instinct in trouble? What pops into your heart the moment that fear arises? 
I got news yesterday that my mother was showing symptoms of a stroke. Where do you go when the winds begin to blow? Our first instinct should be exactly what Peter does, crying out, Lord, save me. To turn to Jesus in simple faith and a three-word prayer. And of course, friends, Jesus is mighty to save. He takes a hold of Peter. It is Jesus' hold of Peter that saves him, not our hold of him. And in tenderness, Jesus, even in the midst of the storm, rebukes Peter. He had faith, yes, but little faith. Why did you doubt? You had no reason. We have never any reason to doubt our Savior. And Jesus takes him to safety in the boat, and instantly the storm ceases. Last time Jesus calmed a storm in Matthew 8, the disciples marveled. But now... They're more than amazed. Verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him. Worshipped him. They ascribed to this man standing before them the honor that faithful Jews would only ever give to God. Because they conclude this is God in the flesh. The I am. Collectively they confess, truly you are the Son of God. Certainly, they've heard it before in the announcement at Jesus' baptism. They've likely heard demons call Him the Son of God. Jesus Himself called Himself Son in His public prayers to the Father. But this is the first time that we hear it from their lips. They confess with hearts adoring Him in worship that He is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Father, the second person of our triune God. Who He is has not changed. But they finally acknowledge the reality of who the man is standing before them. Though their understanding will certainly still grow, the coin is finally dropping. Jesus is not just some teacher or even some mighty prophet. He is God, and so they worship. Church, the right response to seeing and knowing Christ for who He is, is worship. Worship, the the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of of God. That's why we, we gather weekly here to express what should mark our hearts continually. Worship. Can you imagine, just for a moment, what it would have been like to be one of those disciples on the boat? It might be hard to believe, but you and I, brother, sister, have no less reason to give Jesus your odd response this morning. You don't have to be an eyewitness to the miracles, to have certainty of who Jesus is, the Son of God, and rightly respond to Him in worship. Especially if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian. I I wonder if you've made this objection that, that you haven't seen Him, that extraordinary claims like walking on water, 
resurrection from the dead. These, these kind of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I need to see it. Well, I have good news. There is a testimony greater than even what your eyes can offer. Christians have been given the gift of confidence by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that it is impossible to have faith in Jesus without the inner testimony of the third person of the Trinity, our, our Holy Spirit. The Spirit's role, the Bible teaches, is, is to confirm the truthfulness of the Bible's accounts. Like this one, of Him walking on water. All who have the Spirit, who have been reborn by the Spirit, have this fundamental conviction in common. That God's Word is living and active. That is, it, it still reveals exactly what the disciples saw. Not by proximity, but to our own hearts. What they saw in the darkness of that stormy night, we see too. That Jesus, the Son of God, is a mighty Savior. Not just from winds and waves, but from our greatest enemy. Sin and the judgment it deserves. This Jesus who they worship is, is the Word. The Word who was with God. The Word who, who was God. That the, the one who upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Friends, we gather to worship Jesus, who is the one now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The name above every name, above all other power and dominion, with all things under His feet. Church, today, see and savor Jesus Christ revealed to you in His Word, confirmed by the spirits in our hearts. And give Him your worship. But don't keep that to yourself. As you this morning adore Him in your heart, bring others to the Savior as well. Our sixth and final point today, bring others to Jesus. Look again at the last three verses of our chapter, verses 34 through 36. Jesus with his disciples arrive on the northwest side of the, of the Sea of Galilee at Gennesaret, which is near to their home base at Capernaum. And in verse 35, the men of that place recognized Jesus. Well, this is long before photo or video, so we have to understand that the people here have seen Jesus before and that his reputation as a healer is, is established. And what do these men do? Greet him and move on? No, immediately they send around for all the sick and bring them to Jesus, imploring him to, to just be able to touch the hem of his garment to be made well. We have here just a short vignette, a summary of extensive healings in this town. And yes, let, let's grant that, that maybe their interest in Jesus might be shallow. We learn in the, the Gospel of Luke, right, that Jesus heals ten lepers and only one returns to him to praise God. So even if only one in ten follow Jesus for the right reasons, even if it is shallow, they do get something right. They recognize Jesus and bring others to him. 
Friends, if you have fed on Jesus, the true bread from heaven, and seen him as the sufficient savior in the storm, you have all the more reason to bring everyone to Jesus. The teacher John Piper has a memorable phrase, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That is, the duty for us to go and and tell others about Jesus is motivated by our worship of Him and the opportunity to invite others into that worship. Beloved, have you recognized Jesus for who He is? Then follow Him. Not for His gifts, but for Himself. Feed on Him by faith as the food that endures to eternal life. Obey Him as Lord in whatever He commands. Imitate Him as an example in His delight in prayer. And worship Him as the Son of God, worthy of our awe on bended knee. And if you savor Him as Savior, bring others to Him as well. That they might taste and see that the Lord is good for themselves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we worship the Son of God. Lord, we offer Him the awe of our hearts this morning, revealed in His miracles, showing His true identity as the bread from heaven, as Lord and Savior, Son of God. Lord, He alone deserves the honor and worship of our hearts today. Lord, it is our delight to know Him, to follow Him, to feed on Him, to obey Him, to imitate Him, to worship Him this morning. And it is our prayer. Lord, as we follow our Savior, we would invite others to do the same, that they too would come to know Jesus Christ, bread of heaven, Son of God. Lord, we pray all this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.